0: We're so, so glad that you chose to be here uh, and are joining us for week three of our series called Advent. Advent comes from the Latin meaning coming or arrival. And as we celebrate this, um, as we're coming into the Christmas season, the coming, the, the arrival, the first advent of Jesus, um, and we're just kind of looking at some characteristics, some virtues, some traits that, um, that I believe the first coming of Christ should inspire in us but also virtues or characteristics or traits that we should have as we think forward to the second advent uh, or the second coming of Christ. And so we've just been kind of taking some thematic looks uh, at virtues or characteristics that I think God wants to build in each of us. And today we're talking about hope and um, you know, uh, this season for many people is filled with a lot of hope, especially like the younger you are. I think um, the hope is is maybe even greater as you're anticipating Christmas morning and all the gifts and all the presents and um, or whatever that's going to look like in your house, like just being prepared for um, coming downstairs or coming into the main room and, and seeing the presents and Um, you know, like obviously as you get older and then as you become a parent, like you look forward to Christmas so much, but just in a different way. And uh, there's still so much hope and um, maybe if nothing else, it's just hope that your kids will like their gifts that they got uh, and won't be spoiled brats or something like that. But but for so many of us, for different reasons and different ways, there's so much hope um, built into the Christmas season and the Christmas holiday Um, and for different reasons. Um, but today we're going to look at the Christmas story and and really take a look at the hope that should be inspired in us because of the first coming and because of the second coming of Christ. And so if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to open them and turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Uh, now we've got Bibles provided in the seats. Maybe you want to pull out your phone or your tablet and open up your Bible app, um, or we're going to put... Um, the verses today on the screen as well if that makes it a little bit easier so we're going to be in Luke chapter 2 and we're going to start in verse 22 we're going to start in verse 22 and it says this and when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses they this is talking about Mary and Joseph brought him the baby Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So let me just give you some kind of context there. Uh, Obviously, Luke, who's writing this gospel, um, he's not writing to a Jewish audience. And we know that for a number of reasons, but one of them is things like this happen all the time in the gospel of Luke. Um, And so what you'll notice is right here in verse 23, we get these parentheses. Um, Luke is trying to explain to his audience what's taking place. Well, a Jewish audience would have known exactly what was going on. Uh, If they had said that they were taking the baby Jesus to the temple um, to be consecrated, that would have been more than enough information. Um, they could have just said, uh, they were taking, you know, Luke could have said they were just taking baby Jesus to the temple and probably a Jewish audience would have known exactly what that meant given the timing and, and all the events surrounding it. But, but Luke is not writing to a Jewish audience. So he has to explain a lot of these customs. Which is convenient for you and I, because I'm going to guess most of us in here are not Jewish and wouldn't know all of the Jewish customs. And so it can be really helpful at times when he does this. Uh, So he's just trying to explain to us what's going on. You know it's written in the law of the Lord. You know it's written in the first five books of the Old Testament, in the law... um, that every male who first opens the womb has to be consecrated, that you have to offer a sacrifice. Um, And he actually is quoting the Old Testament here, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So just kind of giving us some context of what Mary and Joseph are doing and really why they're doing it. So that's just kind of the background there. Let's keep moving on, verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and and," and this man was righteous and devout according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Uh, Let me pray for us before we go any farther today as we look at this passage. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for who you are and your presence in this place. And um, God, would you give us insight into your truth and Um, To understand your word, Um, God, would you move in us and speak to us, Lord? Would you make us different so that when we walk out of here today, we're different than when we walked in this morning? Would you do something to, to stir up and inspire hope in each of our minds and our hearts and our lives, Lord? We love you and praise in your name, Amen. And so, what we have is we have Mary and Joseph. They've entered into the temple um, to to do what's customary, um, to offer sacrifices um, to baby Jesus, or not to baby Jesus, um, for baby Jesus. Um, and, and so there is a man who has been waiting to see God's promise fulfilled, um, who has prayed and God has answered and, and confirmed that he will not die until he gets to see God's promise come to fruition. And so here in this moment, he sees Mary and Joseph come in with Jesus. He grabs the little baby Jesus, holds him up high, and starts to proclaim that God has done it. That God has answered both Simeon's prayer and the prayer of the entire nation. And and there, the hope is fulfilled. In that moment for Simeon, all that he's been waiting for has come true. Now here's what I want us to do, just to get an understanding of of really what's going on in this moment. Uh, I want us to back up and look a little bit at the promise uh, that so many Jews were waiting for, that the the nation of Israel had been waiting for, um, where all of their hope had been focused. So I'm going to read a few passages for you, and we'll talk about it a little bit, but I just want you to get a perspective of some of the things that they were waiting for to get a perspective of where their hope was targeted and and so that we can understand the power and the significance of this moment uh, as Simeon's there celebrating God fulfilling his promise. So we've talked several times before about some of the promises that God has made in the Old Testament, specifically one that he made to a man named Abraham. And the promise that he makes to Abraham is repeated several times but we find it in at least one instance of it in Genesis chapter 22. And this is going to be on the screen for you. And it says this, God speaking to Abraham, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of, the, of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice, and so there, um, Moses. I mean, excuse me. Abraham had just finished, um, kind of representing his faith and trust in the Lord by being obedient to God's commandments, and and so actually, this is not the first time God makes this promise to Abraham. This is just one of the instances. Um, right after Abraham kind of proved that he was going to be faithful to follow um, to follow God no matter what, and so the the promise here is kind of reemphasized that um, I'm going to make you a great nation. Your descendants will outnumber the stars and the sand grains on the seashore um, that, that I'm going to work in and through this nation, but ultimately to be a blessing to all of the nations. The first time God made the promise to Abraham, it was that he was going to bless the, the, this new nation he was creating so that they could be a blessing to all the world. And so when God decided it was time to interact and to move and to bring about um, a a rescue plan for the problem that all of us face in life, rather than taking a nation that already existed, rather than taking a a powerful nation that already had all the resources it needed to influence the world, God said, I'm not going to take a nation and transform it. I'm going to start from scratch and create a nation. And he began with a guy named Abram, who we now call and know as Abraham, and his wife, Sarah. And, and God said, I'm going to make a nation through you because of your trust in me and your obedience to me, and I'm going to do things that nobody could imagine. Now, this was a crazy promise because Abraham and Sarah were really old. And not only were they really old, but they didn't have children. And even when they were younger, Sarah was barren, and she couldn't have kids anyways. matter of fact, when Abraham told Sarah the news about what God had said, she began laughing. Because not only could she not have kids in her prime, she was well beyond her prime. There was no hope of them having kids. So how is there ever going to be a nation that was going to come through them? But God didn't take a nation and transform it. He created a new one so that God and God alone would be the one to get all the glory. And so for the nation of Israel, for these people, this idea that God was going to do something special in and through them, that their descendants would outnumber the stars and the sand. That they would possess the gates of their enemies. That they would have victory over those who would try to stop what God was going to do in them. And that ultimately that they would be blessed so they could be a blessing to the rest of the world. That was a promise that they held on to and anxiously awaited its, its fulfillment. Uh, here's another one. And we actually read this one last week. And this is a promise that's made to King David um, uh, uh, almost a thousand years later, after this point, and it says this: uh, God says to to David, "And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever." And so, for these people, they had always kept and held on to this promise that one day God's going to establish a throne, a kingdom, a rule, a reign that no one will ever be ever, able to overthrow. Now certainly for these people, they were thinking geopolitical and what that would mean for their lives in in that time frame, in that part of the world. But they were always waiting for for the ruler to come, someone who is going to come and make things right, someone who is going to come and establish something on behalf of God that no other nation, no other people group could destroy. And they, for more than a thousand years, were waiting for this promise to come true. Here's another one, Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 6. It says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David, so now this is referring back to that promise that was made to David, of the on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and evermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I mean just imagine this picture that they're thinking of the governments will be on his shoulder that there will be peace, there will be justice, there will be no end to the to the greatness of the throne of what this promised the, the fulfillment of this promise is going to bring for us. Here's one more. This is the last one I want to read for you today. Isaiah chapter 25, starting in verse 7. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So you can start to imagine what they were building up in their minds. This promise that's now more than 2,000 years old that God is going to do something powerful, something that no one else can stop. There'll be peace. There'll be justice. There'll be be a, a throne, a rule, a reign that no enemy can overthrow, that no enemy can defeat. That salvation is coming. That death will be defeated. That a blessing is coming. A blessing that won't just be for the nation of Israel, for those people. It will come through them. It'll come through King David's line. But it's a blessing that'll be shared with all the nations. So that's their mind, that's what they're waiting for. This is what Simeon is waiting for. God, when are you going to fulfill your promise? When When is it all going to come true? Simeon had built the hope of his life on the fulfillment of this promise and had begged God, don't let me die before I see it come true. Don't let me die before the promise is fulfilled. Now we can all imagine the power and the weight of what they were waiting for. But sometimes we forget just how desperate um, these people were. And, and sometimes we forget about the situation that they were in. So you now know about the promise. Now let me tell you about their world. So um, if you know much about history, um, that part of the world uh, has been in great turmoil for thousands and thousands of years. The region was originally um, conquered Um, the northern part by the Assyrians in the 8th century B.C. Then the Babylonians came and conquered the southern part of the region um, in the 6th century B.C. And so since the 6th century, um, God's people have literally practically not owned their own property, have not had that land to themselves. So the Persians come in in the 5th century B.C., and they take over. The Persians are a little better, but they still rule and reign over the Israelites. And then, after as the Persians are reigning, there's a guy named Alexander the Great, a Macedonian who falls in love with Greek culture, creates a Greek empire, and overthrows the Persians. So now, the Greeks are in control. And then things turn very, very dark. In 175 BC, um, there is a Syrian uh, king who is ruling, um, basically ruling part of the Greek Empire as a uh, as kind of a client king. His name is Antiochus the Third, and he moves in and he conquers all of this region, including Egypt. Now, now Antiochus the Third is. What you can imagine a king would be like in the second century BC, but it's his son who's terribly brutal. And when, when the Antiochus the Great, as he's known, dies and Antiochus IV takes over, he decides it's his job to force Greek culture and his personal religion and ideals on everyone in his kingdom. And so apart from, aside from attempting to overthrow and destroy Egypt, which he pretty much does, um, and, and as he's battling there, and as the battle gets difficult, he starts heading north of, from Egypt, right into the land of what we would call today Israel. And he takes over. And his rule and his reign is brutal. He overthrows and destroys and kills hundreds of, of thousands of Jews he begins forcing Greek culture on them to the point where at one point he pulls out a 90-year-old priest into the middle of Jerusalem and tries to force him to eat pigs flesh, which if you know about Jewish religion and tradition, um, they would never eat raw flesh of any kind and they will n- they won't touch pigs and he tries to force this 90 year old priest to eat raw pig flesh in the middle of the city. And when he refuses, in front of the entire city in Jerusalem, he flogs the man to death. And then he brings out a woman and her seven children, her seven sons, to force them to worship an idol that he created of Zeus. And as they refuse, one by one, he slaughters them in the middle of the city. And he saves the mom for last. So the last thing she sees is every one of her children Slaughtered for a refusal to worship Greek idols. And it hit its ultimate low when, when Antiochus goes in, slaughters pigs in the Jewish temple, and literally takes the blood of the pigs to paint the, the temple walls. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of Jews are murdered in this process. Everything about their culture and their life and their religion and their faith and the places that they cherished have been destroyed and desecrated. And they're going, Hey, God, isn't there a promise? Where's the blessing, God? Where's this throne, this ruler who's going to reign forever that the enemies can't defeat? Where's the peace? Where's the justice? So the Jews revolt. If you know much about history, it's referred to as the Maccabean Revolt. And they do overthrow and defeat Antiochus, take control back of the temple, take control back of the region. And, and the Jews actually do have control over the region for almost 100 years. As they go back to re-consecrate the temple, that's what Jews now celebrate in Hanukkah. Is it, Hanukkah means consecration. They, they re-consecrate the temple. Um, but it just doesn't last long. Because as the Greek Empire is waning, the Roman Empire is growing. And about 63 B.C., that region is conquered by the Roman Empire. And then things just continue to get darker and darker and darker. Most of you have heard of Julius Caesar, um, who was assassinated in 44 B.C. Um, you may be familiar with, with at least Shakespeare's account of of the events. We know that two of the parties involved in in Caesar's assassination were Brutus and Cassius. And as they tried to take over the rule and the reign of the Roman Empire after assassinating Caesar, there were a few people who stood up to stop them. There was one guy named Octavian and one guy named Mark Antony. And uh, Octavian and Mark Antony defeat Uh, Brutus and Cassius at the great battle of Philippi. And so they are going to share the throne of the Roman Empire. But as we know, nobody in power likes to share. And so there begins to develop a civil war. A civil war between the two parties. Um, And part of it was fueled because of a love for power and wanting to hold exclusive power. Another part of it was... um, Antony was married to Octavian's sister, but he was having an affair with a very famous Egyptian queen named Cleopatra. And so um, this fueled a civil war um, that led to um, many thousands and thousands of people dying. Um, Great taxation all over Rome to pay for this civil war. Eventually, Octavian uh, defeats Antony. And Octavian, when he takes the throne, renames himself Caesar Augustus. And that's probably the name that you're more familiar with and knowing. And it's this Caesar Augustus who actually calls for the census that causes Mary and Joseph to travel to Bethlehem at the birth of Jesus. But because um, one Roman empire can't rule the whole nation, uh, there was a client king set up in the region of Judea and Samaria and Galilee, uh, named Herod the Great. And Herod claimed himself to be a Jew. That way he would get the right to rule that area. But he didn't like the Jews. As a matter of fact, he was responsible for the slaughter of thousands of their priests. When he heard that Jesus was being born, it was this Herod the Great that ordered all of the baby boys in, in Bethlehem to be murdered, So that he could make sure that Jesus was a part of that number. So the Jews are going, God, where's this promise? Hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of them have been slaughtered. Everything that they cherish and love and hold dear has been destroyed, or or completely desecrated disrespected they're thinking of all of these promises that god made going god where is the fulfillment god where are you when are you coming when are you going to bring peace and justice in a throne that will never end when is the blessing coming it was a brutal time especially for these people and in this region And they're wondering, where's the promise? Where's the fulfillment of the promise? And that's the situation that we walk into when we see Simeon in the temple taking the baby Jesus in his arms and holding him up. I'm going to read for you again what he said Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Promise fulfilled. All the hope, all the hope that we've been holding on to for generation after generation after generation is finally here. The target, the focus of all of our hope lies right here in this baby. Now the reality is usually when we think of Christmas we think of well we're celebrating an event in the past. We're celebrating the birth of Jesus. We're, we're celebrating an activity which is certainly true. But what we celebrate in Christmas, what we celebrate in the Advent season is so much more than just an event that one time, at one time took place. We're celebrating the character of God. That our God makes promises and he keeps them. That our God knows what he's doing. In Galatians it says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son. When the fullness of time had come, for the first time in human history, because of the Roman road system, you could travel from Europe, Northern Europe, all the way to India. For the first time in history, from England to India, everybody spoke a common language. Unlike any other time in history, Could you travel with the safety and security of knowing that there was a Roman army stationed throughout the entire Roman Empire? For the first time in human history, there was a common currency that could be used to travel and to trade from Europe to India. As the Roman Empire was growing, the state religion, the Roman state religion... And the old ancient Greek state religion were beginning to fall into disrepair. As the time was preparing for Christ to come, philosophers of all kinds were beginning to ask big questions about life and eternity and truth and meaning. Questions that philosophy could ask but couldn't answer. When the fullness of time had come, God sent His Son. the uh, National Population Bureau estimated that although at the time of Christ 90% of human history was in the past only 10% of the human population had ever existed right at the moment of Christ's coming the world was set for a population explosion that had never been seen in human history as everybody was wondering, why, God? Why, God? Why, God? When? 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 Haven't we been through enough? When is the promise going to be fulfilled? God knew what he was doing. He knew when the time was right. He knew when the place and the the hearts of the people and the culture and the community were going to be at the perfect moment for Christ to come. So that in within one generation of the life of Christ, the Christian church was, on, uh, was in every part of what was then the known world. When the fullness of time had come, Simeon's standing at that moment in history where all of human history is divided, celebrating God fulfilling his promise. We don't just celebrate an event. We celebrate the character of God that he's in control, that he knows what he's doing, that he knows the past, the present, and the future, and that our God keeps his promises. That's what we celebrate at Advent. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. And it's not just limited to a one-time event 2,000 years ago, but is true every day of our lives. We're going to close with Romans chapter 8. I'm going to start in verse 18. This is the Apostle Paul writing, a man who has um, had multiple assassination attempts on his life, who's been beaten, who's been shipwrecked, who's, who's gone hungry and cold and starving, who's been rich and poor, and who finds himself over and over in prison for his faith and one day will be beheaded because of his faith. And he says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation awaits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth Until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul is in his own suffering in the moment. Knowing that everything experienced in this life isn't even worth comparing to what we'll experience one day. And begins talking about how, how even creation itself understands how broken this world is. That this world was not meant to be like this. That everything has been fractured because of sin. All of us fill it. Creation itself fills it. And eagerly awaits for things to be made right again. And then Paul says this, but not only creation, we ourselves, he says, who have the first fruits. What Paul's saying there is, is it's like in this life, we've all been given an appetizer of God's goodness but the main course is to come all of us have gotten just a taste of God's love and his grace and his goodness and his power and that he does keep his promises but one day we'll see him and his glory and understand who he is and experience in its fullest sense we've just been given the first fruits today just a taste but the main course is coming And not only in creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Just as the Israelite people were anxiously awaiting, they were eagerly groaning for God to fulfill his promise, we too are waiting with with anxious hope that the second advent of Christ is coming as well. That one day Christ is going to finish what He has started. And though the world around us may be terrible, maybe you feel it on a really personal level. I mean, yeah, we can all look at the news and go, oh man, isn't, aren't things bad? But maybe you feel it on a personal level. Every day you wake up, and it feels like something's missing. Every day you wake up, and it feels like the world's just not right. Every day you wake up, and it doesn't seem like things are moving in a positive direction. We anxiously await God keeping his promise. We put all of our hope and all of our trust in. And God, who's capable, who's powerful, who's all-knowing, he will keep his promise. Advent is about celebrating the first coming, the first advent of Christ, but it's also looking forward with hope to the second. Knowing that no matter how terrible life gets, no matter how dark the world seems, when the fullness of time comes, Jesus is coming back. When the fullness of time comes, we'll meet him face to face. Maybe you and I don't even make it to the second coming of Christ. But we know that there is great hope for us after death. That just as that passage out of Isaiah said, that he has defeated death. And it no longer holds us down. As we look at the first coming of Christ, we should be filled with hope because we serve a God who keeps His promises. and We can have hope as we look towards the future that our God is there, that He knows what's going on in our lives, that He's always in control, and that He will keep His promises. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you for our time this morning. God, I thank you for uh, just the opportunity to stop and to think and to reflect on who you are and what you've done. And God, there are no surprises for you. There's no circumstances, no situations that catch you off guard. God, I pray that as we look at our own lives and our own world, that we would come to a place of total trust in you. That no matter how dark the world around us may seem and may feel, it's you're in control. I want you to keep your eyes closed for just a moment. And as we just stop and think about who God is and what He's done for us, that Christ has come. That He was the salvation. That He was the fulfilled promise. That He was the answer. That He came to do what we couldn't do. So many people were expecting him to establish an earthly throne that would last forever. But he came to establish an eternal throne that would rule and reign in our hearts and our lives. At least for now. Until he comes again and finishes what he started. And as we stop and think and reflect this Christmas and Advent season, I encourage you to stop and not just think about what he's done, but what is he doing now? What is he doing in your life? Is he ruling? Is he reigning in your life? Have you allowed him to be that king sitting on the throne of all that you are? And all that you're becoming, would you stop and reflect and think? As we have an opportunity to respond to who God is and what he's doing and what he's speaking. I don't know what your response looks like. Maybe it's an opportunity for you to stand and to sing, to celebrate the character and the goodness of our God. Maybe you want to spend some time just sitting, praying, reflecting. We have communion available here on the side of, of the room if you want to make that a part of your worship response. Take this moment to, to think about Jesus as king in your life, to celebrate him being king. Maybe you just need to stop and to pray and to ask him to be king in your life. Lord, thank you for all that you're doing. Would you continue to speak and to move in this place and to fill us with hope that though we don't know the future, you do. And we can trust that you're in control. We can be filled with hope that these present sufferings are not worth comparing to what we will experience one day because of who you are and what you've done. Lord, would you continue to speak? Would you continue to move in this place? Lord, we love you and pray this in your name. Amen.